Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I also have a blog that you can check out, and you can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Monday, January 10th, 2022, and it's a big day in college football because today we're going to have the CFP National Championship game between Alabama and Georgia. And I just wanted to do a quick episode today on a couple of articles that came out from ESPN. One that I really want to focus on came out yesterday, and it is titled, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, both call for increased nil regulation in college football. Quote, you're going to have the haves and the have-nots, end quote. And the genesis for this article were the pregame press conferences that the coaches always give. And when Nick Saban or Kirby Smart speak about college sports, people listen, and, and they should, because these two guys are achieving at the highest level. And Saban, I think, will go down as one of the greatest coaches in any sport. And Georgia's had a phenomenal run under Smart. And Smart was an assistant coach at Alabama under Saban. He came to UGA in 2016. And the storyline is that Georgia has been operating in the shadow of Alabama. And that's true, but so has the rest of college football, maybe with the exception of Clemson over the last couple of years. But Georgia is knocking on the door every year. And the, the product that Georgia's putting out is really exceptional. So you have these comments that go to an issue that really isn't the kind of issue you would expect coaches to be talking about at a press conference that occurs the day before the national championship game. And you have all these feel-good stories and some uh, nice profile stories on the coaches and the athletes. And Greg Sankey, by the way, there have been a few really nice puff pieces on Sankey and his uh, success as the SEC commissioner and obviously the success of the SEC that has essentially dominated the college football playoff since its first uh, games in 2015. But I want to talk about this article a little bit and what I think it really means, because I think a lot of coaches in that context, the pre-national championship context or in basketball during the Final Four, if they get a question on something like this or if they preemptively invoke an issue into the discussion that doesn't pertain directly to the national championship game, the standard response or standard approach is just to say that's an outside issue and we'll let the lawyers and the NCAA and all the decision makers worry about that. We're concentrating on this national championship game and we want to stay focused on that. That uh, template got broken a little bit here and I just thought it was interesting that this issue came up and the way that both Coach Saban and Coach Smart talked about name, image, and likeness, and then also its relationship to the transfer rules, I think is a preview of what we're going to see from Greg Sankey in this uh, Constitution Committee process and the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And it is, I think, a seed for what we're going to see when the Power Five re-engage with Congress. And the way that Saban and Smart handle this 
nil issue and the need for additional regulation of name, image, and likeness is really going to bring us back around to the arguments that the NCAA was making from the very beginning in its engagement with Congress in late 2019 and then in early 2020 with that first hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee on February 11th of 2020. And they're playing both sides of a coin here. On the one hand, they're saying, well, we need to get some national uniformity here on this name, image, and likeness thing. We got all kinds of activity out there that's unregulated and it's harmful to college sports. And then on the other side of that coin, they're saying, oh, but we really support name, image, and likeness. And you're back to that kind of Orwellian construction that was brought into de the debate from the very beginning. That is, yes, we support name, image, and likeness, but only within the uh, confines of rules that really limit the athletes' rights to exploit their name, image, and likeness. And that duality came out in these comments. So this article and Saban and Smart's comments will actually be a really nice segue as I transition into what the next steps are going to be for the Power Five under the new authorities and powers that it has through the new constitution, which I think is going to be put up to a vote to the full membership on January 20th. And in prior episodes, I talked about how the Power Five are going to reframe the nil issue for Congress when they go back to Congress and ask for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that will basically give the Power Five and to a lesser extent, the NCAA, the authority to run the name, image, and likeness market at the federal level and determine what, if any, name, image, and likeness opportunities are going to be available to these athletes. And one of the problems that the Power Five faces now is that when they first engaged with Congress in late 2019 and early 2020, and, and actually through into June of 2021, they were saying, that these federal protections and immunities, and they include uh, complete antitrust immunity to eliminate federal courts as external re regulators, and then the preemption of state laws. And that's really, I think, what they're talking about here, and they're landing on that because I think that has the best chance of getting congressional support, bipartisan support. And under the preemption provisions in the laws that have been proposed, the states would basically be taken completely out of the regulatory process. And really, any governmental actor or any institutional decision-making would be taken out of the hands of all those decision-makers and put into this federal body, this entity that would be put together under federal law through the federalization of the name, image, and likeness market. And the enforcement arm of that is going to run through the Power Five and to a lesser extent, the NCAA. So that engagement has to have a new face because the nil market exists and it exists because of NCAA incompetence. It's failure to do anything on voluntary nil rules making. And the fact that it dumped all its nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and the uh, institutions weren't ready for it. In fact, the states that, who had laws going into effect on July 1st of 2021 really weren't prepared at the operational level to handle the new name, image, and likeness market. So all this chaos that people are complaining about and, and Saban and Smart were doing that in this article is not the product of the existence of the market itself, but of NCAA incompetence and the fact that this just got dumped on decision makers who simply weren't prepared for it. So the Power Five can't go back to Congress now and say, look, we absolutely need these federal protections and immunities before any name, image, and likeness market exists because 
if we don't have those protections and we can't control this market, there's going to be calamity and it will be the death of college sports as we knew them. And that obviously hasn't happened. The games go on. The games go on. So that argument's dead. The fear-mongering argument is dead. So what do they do? What is the justification now for federal intervention? And it poses, I think, some very difficult strategic problems. And another thing that's important to put into perspective for context for these comments by Sabin and uh, Smart is the fact that the Southeastern Conference, the SEC, has had since February of 2020, the very beginning of the NCAA Power Five engagement with Congress the first time around, they have had a very powerful lobbying presence. They hired several lobbying firms to do their bidding in Congress to try to get a name, image, and likeness bill that was basically going to allow the Power Five to control the federalized name, image, and likeness marketplace. So when I was doing prep for this episode, I went to the lobbying disclosures that are required under federal law. And uh, let's see, as of February 13th, two days after the first hearing in Congress in 2020, the SEC retained Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, a big-time law firm that has a lobbying arm. And they have spent, let's see, in the last two years, $850,000 they've paid to Aiken Gump. And on the lobbying disclosure forms, Aiken Gump's primary responsibilities, as described in those disclosures, is to lobby against the Athletes' Bill of Rights, which is the Blumenthal-Booker Bill, which would give athletes broad-ranging rights with a focus, I think, on enforceable health and safety protocols for athletes. And I think, again, with an emphasis on football players and the concussion issue is lurking in the background there. At the same time, the SEC hired Marshall and Pop. And Marshall and Pop, as I discussed in my episode on the federal nil police, is the same lobbying firm that the Big 12 has retained. And in their lobbying reports, they are lobbying not really against anything. They're lobbying in favor of this Jerry Moran bill that I've talked quite a bit about. And in that episode on the federal nil police, I talked about the House counter part to that Senate legislation. And that was a, a bill by Steve Shabbat. And I broke that down. But Moran's bill is very similar to that. And let me just read to you how Marshall and Pop describes its purpose in, as a lobbyist for the uh, SEC. It says, issues relating to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics. And I'll just note that that is in full caps, American college athletics. So that is a term of art, but we don't know what it means. I have not heard a definition of the American college athletics, that, that model. And it goes on to say, while modernizing the system to increase economic opportunity for all student athletes on issues surrounding their name, image, and likeness, including S-414 Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. And that is the Moran Bill, which Moran introduced in February of 2021. 21. And Moran is a Republican from Kansas. He's right out of the mold of all the other Republican senators who've been carrying the water for the NCAA and Power Five from the very beginning of the lobbying campaign. And he's right there with Roger Wicker and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and formerly Lamar Alexander, all Republicans. Alexander has since retired from the Senate. 
But this bill, this Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021, that's an Orwellian title, that would basically provide preemption, antitrust immunity, and also a declaration that athletes can't be employees. And it would create what's called a federal corporation that would be in charge of regulating and enforcing the name, image, and likeness market at the federal level. States would be gone. This was a federal show. And the qualifying criteria for the board that is going to make all these decisions about, you know, including what benefits athletes could actually receive, the people who are qualified to sit on that federal corporation, the board of that federal corporation, are Power Five insiders and NCAA insiders. So they will have a, basically the federal stamp of approval and extraordinary powers, including subpoena power to go after the bad actors. And that is a horrible piece of legislation. It is anti-athletes' rights, no matter how they try to pretty it up here. Let me go back and see what they were paying Marshall and Pop. And actually, I need to list this third firm. This is the uh, subject matter company, and they uh, were formerly known as Elmendorf Ryan. Again, the Big 12 are using these people as well. And in their lobbying form, let's see, what do they say here? That they are dealing with issues related to developing a national solution to preserve the unique model of American college athletics. That is not full caps, so American is obviously uppercase, but then college athletics is lowercase, while modernizing the system, blah, blah, blah. So you have these three lobbying firms doing the SEC's bidding behind closed doors, and I haven't heard Greg Sankey or any representatives or Coach Saban or Coach Smart talking about those lobbying efforts and what bills that they are actually uh, pursuing and opposing in Congress. So these comments aren't in, made in a vacuum. There's a lot of activity going on behind the scenes in Congress, and this lobbying activity goes right up to the present. So they haven't gone away and their focus hasn't changed and the bill that they're supporting or the bills that they're supporting and the bills that they're opposing hasn't changed. And all told between those three firms since February of 2020, the SEC has spent almost exactly a million dollars. Now, I also want to point out that I think it's unlikely that either Coach Saban or Coach Smart have ever read the bills that are referenced in these lobbying disclosures or have gotten to that level of detail in terms of uh, what exactly it is that the SEC is asking for, what specifically they're asking for, and what the true import of these laws would be if they were passed. But I think that at a broad brush level, they understand the basic thrust of the campaign, and that is to create a federalized nil market that the power players will have absolute control over it. But their, their comments are really disguises for that power play. And I would be shocked if Greg Sankey hadn't had some conversations with Coach Saban and Coach Smart before those press conferences, either to prep them for any questions on nil or to help them try to weave that issue into their comments, because this is a big deal. This is the next item on the agenda after this transformation committee, this Division One Board of Directors transformation committee starts to put some flesh on the bones of the new authorities they have under this new constitution. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Greg Sankey sure as hell knows what's in those bills and what's been going on in these lobbying campaigns and what it is that he is asking Congress to do on behalf 
of the Southeastern Conference and all of its member institutions. And in connection with the SEC's lobbying efforts, and that's true for all of the Power Five conferences, they all have hired lobbyists, some of the same firms. They're all arguing for the same bills and arguing against the same bills. It's a coordinated effort. And the Power Five lobbying effort, I think, sprang to life out of a concern that the NCAA's lobbying initiatives, and that was run exclusively through Brownstein Height. I've talked quite a bit about them. That's a lobbying firm that the NCAA hired in 2014 when it was making the case for the Power Five's autonomy legislation. And I've talked quite a bit about that. And it was a disguised campaign because you didn't have the Power Five conference commissioners or Power Five university presidents making that argument. You had Mark Emmert the, through the NCAA making that argument in the Senate in August of 2014. They hired Brownstein Hyatt in June or July of 2014, just before that hearing. But one of the points that I have made is that the Power Five have been concerned about the NCAA's handling of its strategies to eliminate external regulators. And in the congressional campaign, I think they wanted things to move a little more quickly than the NCAA was pushing for. And so they were trying to turn up the heat a little bit. But again, their fundamental message was identical to the NCAA's. They're supporting the same concepts, the same federal protections and immunities, and they're promoting the same legislation and opposing the same legislation. So substantively, there wasn't much difference, but I think the Power Five thought that they wanted things to move a little more quickly. And one of the points that I made when I was talking about that congressional campaign is that you have all these lobbyists, and, and that's great to have, and they, I'm sure they add value to the campaign that these uh, stakeholders are engaged in to essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement. But these Power Five institutions and the conferences have a direct line to the senators in the states that represent the Power Five interests. And it is a powerful, powerful connection. And I think that came through really when the Democrats took control of the Senate in 2021. And Maria Cantwell, who was a Democrat from the state of Washington, took over the chair of the Commerce Committee. And again, commerce is important because they have original jurisdiction over sports-related issues. But Cantwell took over from Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi. And she was very tuned in to the importance of the status quo and big-time football and big-time athletics. And she put a gender equity gloss on it and a non-revenue gloss on it. But in many respects, particularly when it comes to preemption and this need for a national uniform standard, she wasn't that far apart from Roger Wicker. And Cantwell was very interested in getting a bipartisan solution here. She's not nearly as well-versed in the issues as the NCAA's Republican senators are. And Wicker and Moran kind of ran circles around Cantwell. But at a philosophical level, at a theoretical level, at a values level, I don't think that Cantwell and other, I would say, moderate Democrats are that far apart on some of these basic issues and the need for federal intervention and regulation, ostensibly related to nil. But when you look at the fine print of these Republican-friendly bills, the federal protections and immunities extend far beyond nil and would basically federalize the compensation limits that the NCAA and Power Five have been, have been benefiting from since the 1950s. So it's a very interesting dynamic in Congress. But one of the things that I observed, and I think this is going to happen with Greg Sankey leading the charge and re-engagement with Congress is that 
these lobbying firms are, are going to become less important and you're going to have direct lines from the university presidents, the power five university presidents and the conference commissioners to these senators. And if you have one of the most influential college football coaches in the history of the game and Nick Saban, and one of the best current coaches in, in Kirby Smart, saying the same thing and talking about a nil marketplace that dovetails with the objectives of your lobbyists in Congress, that's a very powerful message and a very powerful megaphone justifying the need for federal intervention. I'm thinking Nick Saban and Kirby Smart are way more effective as lobbyists than any of these lobbying firms could ever be. So let's start with the title. And the word both is important. Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, both call for increased no regulation. That is the consensus argument. Look, everybody agrees here. And in these hearings that were conducted in 2020 and 2021, you had legislators, you had senators forcing the witnesses to state on the record that they agreed that there should be a uniform national nil standard. Uniformity, uniformity. And there was wide agreement on that. And so they're building momentum for this consensus argument. And with Sabin and Kirby Smart both calling for increased nil regulation, you reinforce the consensus theme. Everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. And then there's this. You're going to have the haves and the have-nots. Oh, no, not the haves and the have-nots. I mean, the entire business model of big-time college sports, particularly big-time football, is built on increasing the distance between the haves and the have-nots. I, I mean, the suggestion that Nick Saban and Kirby Smart believe that they should surrender any competitive advantage that they've built in the talent acquisition market because of out-of-control name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation is ridiculous. And it is directly at odds with the way that the Power Five business model has evolved and the acquisition of power that it has obtained under the NCAA umbrella, and particularly through autonomy legislation in 2013-2014, which Greg Sankey was a principal author of, that gave the Power Five these special privileges and special legislative prerogatives to provide additional benefits above the then existing uniform national compensation limits that the NCAA was enforcing, but the autonomy classification and autonomy legislation gave the Power Five and only the Power Five the ability to provide these additional benefits like the cost of attendance scholarship and theoretically degree completion programs and additional food and nutrition and all that stuff. Those Power Five specific benefits were specifically designed, in my judgment, to get ahead of what was happening in O'Bannon in 2013 and 2014 and the fear that Judge Wilkin was just going to blow the doors on amateurism. But at the same time, and this is just a cynical power play and you take crisis and you turn it into advantage and opportunity. Those additional benefits weren't blowing the doors on amateurism, but they did, as a practical matter, create enormous distance between the Power Five and the Group of Five, this next group of conferences that's been nipping at the heels of the uh, Power Five for decades. And this goes back to the transition from the Ball Alliance to the BCS, and the Group of Five interests were threatening to, to sue the Power Five under antitrust principles because they felt they didn't have a seat at the table in these discussions about 
who was going to have a place in these big bowl games. And there were hearings in 2003, 2006. This is a recurring issue. And that antitrust issue has not gone away. And that's another reason that you hear this rhetoric about equity. And I'll address that in more detail in upcoming episodes. But for any Power Five representative to claim that they are concerned about the have-nots is so ridiculous on its face that I just find it interesting that an ESPN writer, and this guy was uh, Chris Lowe, an ESPN senior writer, that he didn't call that out in this article. And, and I just want to reflect back to some testimony that was given, and I think it was 2003 in the Senate, and I think it was Senate Commerce. And we had Miles Brand, who was then the NCAA president, and sitting next to him was a, a gentleman named Harvey Perlman, who was then the chancellor at the University of Nebraska. And Perlman has been very aggressive behind the scenes in promoting Power Five football interests. But in response to questions and concerns by the Senate about the the revenue sharing component, about the big-time football interests, what are now the Power Five, making all this money, having an iron-fisted control over the uh, most lucrative parts of the business model, and then refusing to share it with downstream competitors or making uh, a more open level playing field for the have-nots. And the have-nots in that context were what are now the group of five. Miles Brand and Harvey Perlman both said, look, this is America. We have the best product. We're taking that product out into the marketplace, and we're going to use these fundamental principles of free competition and entrepreneurship and uh, rough-and-tumble capitalism to bring what the market will bear. And we, we're not going to share any of our money with you. If you want to compete with us, then go out and do it. But their fundamental philosophy is that we're going to pursue our financial interests and we're going to be competing with you and we're going to kick your ass. I don't think that philosophy has changed at all. And it's one of the reasons, I think, with the assistance of under the NCAA umbrella advantages like the autonomy classification, that the SEC and the Big Ten have been walking all over the competitors in big time college football. I guess you have to throw in Clemson there most recently. But you have a very small number of true power players that are reaping the benefits of the disparities between the haves and the have-nots. And they have purposely created a market in which they are sitting in the have chair and the have-not chair is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's just the way they like it. And I should also point out that in these antitrust suits that started really with this California trilogy, the White case in 2006, which was cost of attendance, then O'Bannon, name, image, and likeness, 2009 to 2016, and then Austin, 2014 to 2021. The NCAA initially defended its compensation limits on the grounds of, quote-unquote, competitive balance. That was a pro-competitive justification in the rule of reason antitrust analysis. And what they were saying is that these amateurism-based compensation limits were essential to try to create a level playing field and to prevent the haves from increasing the distance between them and the have-nots. And the, that argument was so ridiculous on its face because of the way that the Power Five have dominated the college football marketplace and the way that they have purposefully and systematically excluded from the competitive field 
any other group of potential competitors that the competitive balance argument just sort of disappeared and they didn't make it in Austin. They didn't even tr go through the motions. They essentially abandoned that argument because it was so absurd on its face and NCAA witnesses were saying the same thing in their deposition testimony and in their testimony at trial. It was an indefensible justification for amateurism-based compensation limits because nobody looking at the big-time college sports marketplace, particularly big-time college football, can argue with a straight face that there is an intent to try to have a level playing field or that there's going to be any decision-making that's going to make it more likely that uh, there could be competitive balance and a level playing field. And that same desire to preserve a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market and the regulatory market was expressed quite clearly just in November and December through these draft constitutions and then the formation of the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, which has a majority of power five interests. The group of five has uh, token representation on that committee. And all these changes that are going to occur at the divisional level under this new constitution, which sends all these national authorities down to the divisions, that's going to run through the power five. And I've done episodes on that. And you know, that I've been saying that till I'm blue in the face, but the Power Five is taking the public stance now. They're, they're all concerned about the have-nots. We're all worried about the have-nots now. And I think that springs from a new strategy probably devised by the conference commissioners in conjunction with their lobbyists that there has to be a new theme that's going to have resonance at the political level and that's going to give them a justification for reengaging with Congress and asking again for the same things that they ask for much different reasons in 2019, 2020, and 2021. And if you're a senator who has heard all of the NCAA Power 5 BS since 2019 and, and through 2021, and you realize that their justifications for these federal protections and immunities were false all along because the games go on and the market hasn't tanked and the college sports as we know it hasn't come to a fatal collapse. And then it's very likely that you're not going to be very receptive to the same arguments that were made in 2019, that the sky is going to fall and we have to have these federal protections and immunities to prevent that from happening. So what's the benefit of the have, have not theme? Well, it's an equity-based theme, and senators are drawn into that, and they respond to it politically. If you can come up with an equity-based rationale that isn't a mere you know, recycling of these failed arguments, I think that's the best approach. And I think they are testing the waters here to see if this new equity-based argument, the have-have-not dichotomy, is going to have residence at the public relations level, at the consumer level, but more importantly, at the political level when they re-engage with the Senate. And I think it's precisely that kind of argument that legislators like Maria Cantwell are going to listen to and potentially buy into, particularly since they are not super well-versed in the nuances of the business model and the history of the Power Five and the extent to which they have over the decades purposefully achieved an insurmountable advantage in the talent acquisition market. Because in an unregulated market, and this is so, so important, I talked about this as well in prior episodes, or not an unregulated market, because the market is very highly regulated right now. That's another myth of the way they characterize the existing nil market. But in a less regulated nil market, 
that doesn't have the structure at the regulatory level or the organizational level that I think the stakeholders thought they would have if they got federal intervention. If you don't have that, then you have an environment where the Power Five don't have absolute control over their competitive advantage relative to the Group of Five or any other group of competitors. And out in that free market, that less regulated market, some of these lower tier actors might have the opportunity to find ways in the marketplace through innovation and free markets to compete with the Power Five. So the, the, this is, we're back to an, another Orwellian absurdity here. The Power Five are now couching this in terms of haves versus have-nots when, in fact, their fear in this less regulated market is that it's actually going to close the gap between the haves and the have-nots. So let me just go through this article. It's not very long, but it had a purpose here, I think. And remember, ESPN's joined at the hip with the Power Five, and Greg Sankey's the savior if you read looking at all these feel-good articles that have been coming out. So first paragraph, Alabama football coach Nick Saban and Georgia coach Kirby Smart both called for increased regulation on name, image, and likeness deals for college athletes during their joint college football playoff news conference Sunday. So again, the fact that this was a joint press conference gives additional power, authority, and credibility to this messaging. Next paragraph. Without more regulation, Sabin and Smart said, the same teams are going to continue to dominate college football. All right, let's stop right there. You think Nick Saban and Kirby Smart don't want to be playing in the national championship game? Do you think they would rather turn over their slot to one of the have-nots? Why don't we bring in uh, a couple of more group of five schools to compete for the national championship? Just Let's just have a different format just to mix it up a little bit so we can see what these have-nots bring to the table because we're really concerned about them. And so long as the Alabamas and the Georgias of the world are going to continue to dominate the college football playoff, that's not a good thing. And it's all because of this name, image, and likeness. And on that point, I'll also point out that if you're ESPN or you're a Joe Blow fan, you might like to see a little more diversity in the college football playoff. And it's one of the reasons that there's talk about expansion so that you have some new faces coming in and you don't have the same people in the Final Four and the same people in the national championship game. But do you think that that's going to happen through Alabama or Georgia relinquishing their competitive advantages in the talent acquisition market? And that's what all this is about? No. And they may have some concerns that dovetail with the value of the CFP product. And obviously ESPN has those concerns. And it, would, it might be great to have Alabama and UCLA or, or Oregon or Alabama and Ohio State or Alabama and Texas. Who knows? Something that's more regionalized that gives the, the CFP a more broad-based appeal. I don't know if there's any evidence that that would make a difference in viewership. Who knows? I think Americans want to see the best teams play. And right now, the best two teams in the country are the University of Alabama and the University of Georgia. I'm not sure fans really care or that there would be more people watching Alabama, UCLA or Alabama, Ohio State. Maybe. Who knows? But I think that most college football fans looking at this year's college 
football season would agree that the two best teams in the country are meeting for the national championship game. And if you love college football, that's what you want to see, and that's what you're going to watch. And I, it'll be interesting to see what the ratings are for this game. Then let's see. So the author then says, uh, this low guy says, right at the top of that list are Alabama and Georgia who meet Monday for the national title for the second time in the past five years. Alabama is vying for its sixth national title in the past 11 years. But remember, they're tying the imbalance or the distance between the haves and have nots in this, in these statements and in this article to name, image, and likeness. And the name, image, and likeness marketplace has only been in place for, what, now six months, maybe? And it doesn't pass the blush test. So then we have some comments from Smart, and this is where it gets uh, really entertaining. You're going to have the haves and the have-nots, and the separation that is already there is going to grow larger, Smart said. The schools that have the capacity and the ability and are more competitive in the nil market are going to be schools that step ahead on top of other schools. So I don't want recruiting decisions to be based on that, but ultimately a lot of young men want to make their decision based on that. And again, we have a marketplace that's uh, six months old. We don't know what the market data is going to show, and we don't know if athletes are making decisions based on name, image, and likeness. That's purely speculative. But the suggestion here is that the existing name, image, and likeness market is going to somehow make Alabama and Georgia even more of a have and the lower tiered schools like the group of five more have nots. And there's zero evidence for that. And in fact, I think the opposite could be true in a less regulated nil market. And I think that's really what the uh, SEC and the Big Ten and all the Power Five conferences are really concerned about. And then the article pivots to pointing out that Alabama was ranked number two and Georgia number three in ESPN's 2022 signing class rankings. Texas A&M, another SEC school, was ranked number one. SEC schools have won 11 of the past 15 national championships. And the suggestion there is that these recruiting classes are somehow tied to the advantage that these SEC schools have in the name, image, and likeness market. And again, there's zero data for that, zero evidence for that. And do you really think that the SEC wants to have a market where they're not winning 11 of the past 15 national championships because they are getting the payoff from that. Every time that an SEC school makes it into the CFP and then makes it into the final game and then wins the final game, it's cha-ching, 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 money going directly to the SEC and to the University of Alabama and the University of Georgia. Go dogs. I'm a Georgia guy. I went to law school there, so I have a soft spot in my heart for the dogs. And I have to confess, pull in form, although I have an enormous respect for Alabama and Coach Saban. So then let's see. Then Saban. And I really like one of the things I, I, I really like about Saban is that he, he does the snarky comments occasionally, but I think he has a pretty good perspective on all this. And he is not a snake oil salesman. He's just a guy. He's a coach who's damn good at what he does. He loves what he does. And he succeeded at the highest level. And I think that's true for, for most coaches in, in big-time football and big-time men's basketball. I'm going to do a, a couple of episodes, I think, devoted to the coaching dilemma 
And I think the coaches are really kind of in a golden handcuffs situation in this whole business model. But Saban, he pretty much speaks his mind and you have to really tease out some of the misdirection when he chooses to employ it. And he does that very selectively, but he's pretty much what you see is what you get. And I think the, the same is true with Coach Smart. And I, I, I think that's great. But here, I think they really they really put themselves out there for some criticism. But let's see. Saban said the nil rules were a positive thing for players and that their ability to earn money wasn't a bad thing. But he is concerned about how the nil rules are being used to lure players to school. And he says, I don't think that was the intention, Saban said. I don't think that would be the NCAA's intention. I think we probably need some kind of national legislation to control that to some degree, because I think there will be an imbalance relative to, con to who can dominate college football if that's not regulated in some form or fashion. So that is Nick Saban explicitly calling for federal nil regulation and the federalization of the name, image, and likeness market. When you look at the proposals and chiefly this Moran bill, that the SEC has hired the best and the brightest in Washington, D.C. to lobby in favor of what that bill would do would put the Power Five and to a lesser extent the NCAA completely in charge of that federalized name, image, and likeness market. We don't hear that from either from Saban, from Smart, or from the author. But so that's this sort of duality I mentioned in, earlier in the episode. So you have, yeah, we support name, image, and likeness rights. And I have no problem with athletes getting paid. I think that's true. A lot of big-time coaches feel that way and have always felt that way. But they have some built-in conflicts as well. But I think Saban's saying something here that I think a lot of co college coaches would agree with. But he's not putting it in the proper context. I guess that's the, the best way to put it. And given that Alabama and Georgia and the SEC are already dominating the market. And he talks about who can dominate college football as if it's a bad thing that there's dominance in college football by a team or a conference. But that federal legislation he's talking about that will cure that problem actually will make it worse. And again, I, I don't know if Saban and Smart are familiar with the terms of these bills that have been proposed in Congress. But the article goes on to say the Sports Business Journal reported in December that Alabama quarterback Bryce Young had 14 nil deals over the course of the 2021 season with an estimated value of more than $1 million. Young, who works with CAA Sports, added more than 57,000 followers on Instagram. And then Saban says this. Saban reiterated that he's not against players making money, but also said that maybe there should be an agreement between both the school and player, quote, as to what their commitment is to what they choose to do, making commitments and fulfilling them. And it's not clear exactly what Saban means here. I interpret that to mean that he wants to have some clarification where the universities have more control over these agreements so that the players aren't focused more on their name, image, and likeness than on their football. And if you're a coach, that's a rational way to look at this marketplace, because if you're going to compete at the level that Nick Saban has competed and that the University of Alabama has competed, you need these guys to be full bore on, 100% committed. And if there's anything that pulls them away from that could be a potential problem to your program. And at the beginning of the season, when there was nil mania and we were only a couple of months into this new kind of wild west name image and likeness marketplace 
These deals that Bryce Young supposedly has, and we don't know for sure. I don't think we can get these deals through Freedom of Information Act requests or public records requests. But there were concerns about some kid who really hadn't taken a snap as a starting quarterback all of a sudden being treated like a Heisman Trophy winner. Saban made some comments to that effect. Again, very understated, very subtle, but he, he made some snarky comment about Bryce Young being a, a multi-million dollar guy and he hasn't started a game for Alabama as quarterback. And I, I'm going to tie that into an article that appeared today on this game and a discussion of Bryce Young by the same ESPN writer. And, and, and then come back to this comment that, that Saban meant that suggested that there were going to be commitment issues and that players' heads are going to be in two different places. And that's not good for the coach. It's not good for the team. It's not good for the school. And then there's this transition to the transfer portal. And the article says, as for the transfer portal, Saban said, I don't know if you want to call it a fad or whatever, but anybody that's a little disconnected with the program that they're in, just get in the transfer portal and see what my opportunities would be someplace else. I don't know that was the intention originally. I hope it doesn't continue to be that way. And then the article says, Saban said he understands that most of the transfer portal activity is based on playing time. So in the prior paragraph, he's talking about the transfer portal as this horrible thing. And it is tied to name, image, and likeness because the article is about name, image, and likeness. And that is a link that in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have tried to tie together, and it's going to be one of the arguments that the SEC and the Power Five is going to make when they go back to Congress, and they're going to say, look, this uh, transfer portal combined with this new no marketplace is just chaos. It's calamity. And we have this unregulated labor pool, and they're just free agents bouncing at, uh, all over the place. And yeah, maybe, but again, we have five months of data and then Saban goes on to say this, but when you have 85 guys on scholarship, everybody can't start. Okay, yeah. But the most important part of what Saban's saying there and that, that pivot to the transfer portal and its claimed relevance to the name, image, and likeness is that these players want to play. And I don't think there's any evidence that name, image, and likeness is the driving force behind these decisions to transfer. And, and Saban just calls it out for what it is. He says, when you have 85 guys on scholarship, everybody can't start. So there will be unhappy football players. But here's what you won't hear Nick Saban say. And that is that we shouldn't have 85 guys on scholarship. We could field a team with 50 guys on scholarship. That's not a, an argument that's going to see the light of day. And then there is the next paragraph. And the author says, one of Alabama's best players this season was receiver Jamison Williams, who transferred from Ohio State. Williams leads the Crimson Tide with 15 touchdown catches. So I don't think the transfer portal's been unkind to Alabama or to Georgia. And that's whose ox is being gored there. I'm sure there are some coaches who have had athletes bleed from the program who are not happy with it. But Again, we don't know what that market's going to look like. And I think Saban sort of implicitly acknowledges that when he said, I don't know if you want to call it a fad or whatever, but you have people jumping in and the market will sort itself out. I think that is a reasonable inference from how Saban talked about the transfer market. But then we get Smart's thoughts on it. And the article says, Smart said the transfer portal would impact the way Georgia evaluates prospects during the recruiting process. And then you get a quote from Smart. 
it does make you think hard about the kind of kids you recruit and what their beliefs are and what their goals are and how they got here, Smart said. I think a lot of what you look at when you recruit now is what is the history of the student athlete? You're trying to put a likelihood of when things get tough, because they will get tough. They will get tough in college athletics. Your time demands, practice demands, and competitive demands will get tough. How will they respond? And that's the end of the article. And I think that's an interesting quote, and it seems to suggest that somehow in this existing marketplace, you can't trust the, the players you're recruiting. That's a, a problem. If there's a trust problem, in the commitment between the coach, the program, and the institution on the one hand and the athlete on the other. And I, I look at this a different way. And he talks about you know, looking at the kind of kid you're recruiting. And that is that in this relationship that historically has been where the, the coach and the program and the school had an iron-fisted upper hand in the relationship with the athletes because the athletes were penalized severely if they uh, went to another school. It was a my way or the highway kind of relationship. This transfer market gives the athletes a little more bargaining power, quite frankly. That's you know one way to look at it and that the coaches now are incentivized to try to make those relationships work in the old system if they had a kid that they thought was providing some value to the team, but he was unhappy because he wasn't playing enough. They just basically, my way or the highway to that kid. And he probably wasn't going to leave because of the penalties and having to sit out a year. If you had a kid that just didn't work out, you could find a way to run him off. You just get rid of him. Under this new transfer rule where these guys get one free shot, they can transfer for no reason. I think coaches are going to have to look at their relationships a little bit differently and think a little bit more about the way that they pitch their commitment to the athletes. And it's maybe one that could enhance the relationship because the coaches for the first time have to look at that relationship as uh, one that they have to keep nurturing, not one that they can take for granted. And, and then I, I guess I should also say that what is the history of the student athlete? I don't want to get snarky here, but it makes you wonder, what do these coaches understand about the history of the student athlete? Do they know that it was invented out of whole cloth by the NCAA and NCAA lawyers and Walter Byers in the 1950s to avoid the responsibilities of an employer-employee relationship and to defeat an injured athlete's entitlement to workers' compensation benefits, and that alone was the motivation behind the student-athlete, and that the U.S. Supreme Court in the Austin decision and the way that it framed the facts and the history of amateurism, it basically laid bare the absurdity of those kinds of labels, the student-athlete label. Does he understand that? Does he know the history? And what I think he's invoking that to evoke this imagery and this idealized relationship between the institutional interest and the athletes. And I just don't think that has ever been an honest relationship. And these new market dynamics bring that out into the light. And the coaches are feeling some pressure to change the way that they relate to their athletes. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I think the coaches like Smart, who have been so successful, are successful in part because they understand the importance of those relationships and have been very, very good at keeping good relationships. The, the coaches that are doing the right things now are going to be rewarded for that in this marketplace. It's a little more balanced. And I have no doubt that Smart's going to continue to recruit great kids and great athletes, and George is going to continue to win. He'll adapt. And this goes back to my final episode on the top stories of 2021, and that is 
that the games go on and the great coaches adapt. I use Coach K as an example of that, but Look, Nick Saban's already adapted. I don't think he's losing sleep over what these changes in the in the market uh, are going to really mean for the University of Alabama. And Smart isn't quite there yet. He hasn't won the big one, and I hope he he does that tonight. But I think that he is not going to be losing sleep over whether his kids are going to be fleeing in mass. That's not going to happen because he's not that kind of coach. He's not that kind of guy, and he's going to bring in kids who want to play for the University of Georgia. So. Let's see what happens in this market. And that'll be a a good segue to this article that came out today. Just to show you how so much of the fear-mongering that was in the in-system stakeholder beneficiary camp, including ESPN and a lot of outlets that cover college sports, and that was that name, image, and likeness was just going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse, and it was bad news from the very start. And again, Coach Saban made some comments about Bryce Young earlier in the season when he was getting all these nil deals. And again, a lot of that was generated by a lot of the energy in this new market that had been suppressed for, for decades. And those stories sold advertising. <laughs> so these sports outlets were making a bunch of money from sensationalizing these deals. But Sabin was saying, look, this kid's never taken a snap. He's got to prove something. If these name, image, and likeness deals are related in any way to the athlete's skill, ability, and performance, and they are, and there's no way to tease that out in the marketplace, no matter what the NCAA says or how they try to do it. That's going to be an issue with these high-profile star athletes. Some are going to make it, some aren't. And remember, that the Clemson quarterback had one of these big deals. I think it was with Bo Jangles, and you don't hear boo about that because I'm not sure there was a great return on investment this year for, for Bo Jangles and that. And whoever was doing business with Bryce Young's gotten paid off uh, big time because he's the real deal. He's had a, a phenomenal season, and he won the Heisman Trophy. Wow. Wow, this kid's incredible. But Coach Saban, there was another story that I read where he, he made some uh, observations about the, the new changes in, in the college sports marketplace. And he was speaking some old school language and he was defaulting back to the amateurism-based model. And he was, I think, in a very subtle Saban-like way, criticizing the name, image, and likeness market. But let's take a look at Bryce Young. Let's take a look at one of the guys who has been the most successful name, image, and likeness market participants in all of college sports. He may be the most successful if you're measuring it in terms of the amount of money he's been paid. And again, you have to believe that what we're hearing from these sources is correct or within field goal range of, of being correct. But this article that came out today, and it's again by the same writer, Chris Lowe, and it's a feel-good article on Bryce Young, and he sure as heck deserves some feel-good articles. But the title of the article is, Coaches Heap Praise on Alabama Quarterback Bryce Young Ahead of CFP Title Game Versus Georgia. And so they get quotes, they get quotes from Smart, and they get quotes from Saban. And I think both coaches know, we're talking about a special a special athlete here, a special kid. And uh, they go through all the things he's done, and he's had a, just a, a remarkable season. And then Saban's talking about him, and the intangibles. And, and when you have an athlete of Young's caliber, it's never just the athletic ability. There's some added value there, and that often comes with... Uh, commitment and his love of the game and th- his maturity. And Young has all those things, which if you're Georgia, you know, it makes tonight's game a bit of a, a challenge. But he- here's what Saban said about Young. He said, he's a leader and he's got 
sort of an emotional stability about him that he doesn't really get frustrated or upset in any kind of way. When things don't go well, he can stay focused and keep doing what he thinks he needs to do to be able to have success and make adjustments, adapt to what he needs to do. He's very, very mature, way beyond his years in terms of how he views what he needs to do to be successful. So what is Saban saying there? He's saying that this kid is not going to lose focus. He understands what's important in his relationship to the game and to Coach Saban and the program and to the University of Alabama. And he is giving it his all and he is not going to be derailed. And that uh, is an interesting observation and because in all of the fear-mongering and the parade of horribles that all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have trotted out on this new nil marketplace, one of them has been, and has been from the very beginning, that these star athletes who might get some lucrative nil deals are going to be playing for the nil deal, not for their team. And if there's a player in all of college sports in 2021-2022 who that would have happened to, it would be Bryce Young because of the extraordinarily lucrative name, image, and likeness opportunities that he's had. But guess what? He is leading Alabama to the national championship game and one of the best uh, football coaches in the history of football, college or professional, is saying that what makes him special is his ability to focus and nothing, nothing is going to take him off his task. And I would just say to that, that is intention with how Saban was talking about these issues at the beginning of the season. And the Nick Sabans of the world, the Kirby Smarts of the world are going to continue to recruit the Bryce Youngs of the world. And those kind of quality players are going to go to the University of Alabama and they're going to go to the University of Georgia because they love the game. They want to win. They want to play at the highest level. And the nil thing, yeah, it's okay. It's nice, but that's not what is driving them. They are driven by the very things that made them prize recruits in the first place. And I I think Coach Saban knows that. I have no idea. I would love to know what the conversations were between Sankey and Saban and Smart before this press conference. But the, the proof in the pudding is that the sky hasn't fallen. The market hasn't been an impediment to the quality of the product or the commitment of the kids. And the games go on. And I'm hoping for an incredible game tonight. All right. I'll wrap up this episode now. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 